So if you are at Psalm 46, you might want to head your Bible. If you like to take notes, or it may already be there, this is a psalm of trust. You'll notice at the heading of uh, many of the psalms, you'll find out who the author is. You'll find out maybe the setting of the psalm. So notice the psalm at the top says, for the choir director. Remember, the psalms were songs, so they were like the hymn book of Israel. So where we have songs that we all love, some of us have hymns that we love, some of us have choruses from the 80s and 90s that we love, some of us are, you know, have not been alive that long, so all the contemporary stuff is what we love, and for many of us, it's a combination of everything. We love it all, right? Uh, there's, there's so many different styles and so many different ways that music minister to us. The book of Psalms is a book of songs. So that's one thing to remember when you're reading the Psalms is that it was set to music. Now, what we don't know is what the music was. We don't know exactly what it was set to unless it tells us at the top of the Psalm, and sometimes it does. And even when it does tell us, we don't always know what the tune was like. But you'll notice it was a Psalm. Psalm 46 is a Psalm of the sons of Korah. They were a, kind of a Levitical musical family set to Alamoth, a song. Set to Alamoth, uh, some scholars believe, is, may refer to soprano voices. So this is the psalm of the sopranos. No, not a TV show, but a psalm, right? Maybe for those who were able to sing with a soprano uh, voice. It begins this way, and you'll see at the beginning of the psalm, he points to God immediately saying, God is our refuge and strength. Uh, you would note, Bible students, for those of you who are interested, that the Psalm, uh, Psalm 46 was the basis for Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote that uh, hymn based upon this psalm, and I know there's a modern uh, band, Shane, what's the band that has one to this, I believe? Shane and Shane have a Psalm 46 uh, song as well. God is our refuge and strength. I want you to make this personal. God is your refuge and strength. If, if you're a believer tonight, you can own this. This is yours. He is a very present help in trouble. He's not just present in trouble. He is very present. <laughs> Isn't that good? A very present help in trouble. The way the Hebrew could read with the word present is he is accessible to you and to me. What does it take for us to uh, take advantage of that accessibility, we might ask? And that is we have to walk through the door. The Bible says in James 4.8, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. We are invited to a throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16 that we might receive mercy and help in time of need. And the throne of grace is the place where Jesus is. He's our great mediator in heaven. He mediates for the church and he is the dispenser of grace in times of trouble. In fact, it tells us in the verses in Hebrews that we can go to that throne of grace with confidence why? Because Jesus has already opened the way. The veil is torn. He's already provided the way for us to be right in God's eyes, to petition God with full confidence. 
Why? Because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when we pray, heaven is enlisted. We already have access to God through Jesus Christ. That's very, very encouraging, isn't it? And he's available to us, very present in times of trouble. I want you to turn over to Psalm 18 for a second. We have seen some of the imagery of the refuge, the fortress, if you will, Psalm 18. I'm going to show you a few psalms just to show you some connections to encourage you. So in Psalm 18, David writes these words. He says, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 18, 1. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Turn over to Psalm 31. Psalm 31, David also pens this psalm, and he writes, In thee, O Lord, Psalm 31, 1, In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In thy righteousness deliver me, incline thine ear, 31, 2, uh, to me and rescue me quickly. Be thou to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy name's sake, thou wilt lead me and guide me. Turn over to Psalm 34. Uh, if you've ever had a chance to go to Israel, one of the places that they typically take you is to a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is in the Judean wilderness and it's near where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls the caves of Qumran, if you're looking into the caves, and what you can do today, if you go to Israel, is they kind of have it cordoned off, but you can look across the, the wilderness, if you will, and it's not too far away, and you can see the actual caves where the shepherd boy threw a rock, heard a crash, and they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, which gave us very early copies of books of the Bible, a thousand years earlier than we had in our possession at that time. So we were able to compare that discovery with books we had in our possession and see how accurate the Bible had been maintained over about a thousand year period. And the accuracy is phenomenal. Uh, for example, in the book of Isaiah and other books. And you can see uh, those books as you, if you've ever visited the Dead, Scree Dead Sea Scrolls Library. Well, at En Gedi, when you look off into the distance, En Gedi is, it's all desert. So just imagine a, a just total desert area. And you look off in the distance, not too far away, and all of a sudden you see this greenery. And there's life and everything. And you go over to En Gedi, and there's some natural waterfalls that come down from the springs. And if you look up, you can see there are many caves there. And these caves are referred to in the Old Testament as the strongholds of En Gedi. And these were the caves where David hid from Saul when he was on the run and hiding from Saul. I remember Saul was crazy and he, had, he wanted to kill David and David was up in these caves and you can see some of the animals climbing up on the rock. It's, a, it's an amazing place, this place called En Gedi. And it speaks of a place of refuge, a refuge from the world, a refuge from the desert places, a refuge from the storm. In Psalm 34, 8, uh, one of the things that you find at En Gedi is the natural springs, the living water flowing down, a waterfall speaks of life, water speaks of God. Uh, I'm so thirsty, I need you, Lord. And Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man or the woman who what? 
who takes refuge in him. If you want a blessing, you take refuge in God. And a refuge, if you go back to Psalm 46, is a place that we seek where we feel a deep sense of protection. That's what a refuge is. It's a place of protection. It's a place where we receive renewal and strength from the Lord's presence. Then we can go out and face the things we once feared with his strength. I found that there's times in my own life when I run to God and I may be overwhelmed by life, I may be facing giants in my life, whatever they may be, I go to that place of refuge. For me, it's a place of prayer, it's a place of worship, it's a place to sit before my Bible, it's a place to be quiet before the Lord, and I receive strength. I go to my En Gedi, my place of refuge from the wilderness, I get filled up, I kind of want to plant an easy chair at En Gedi many times, right? Get one of those little drinks with an umbrella in it and just stay there for a long time. But I know there's a world out there that also needs the living water, but I need to be refreshed in the refuge before I can go out and face the things that cause me fear. And I've found that in the presence of my Lord, when I spend time with him, I can then face the things that I once ran from. And maybe you guys can relate to that as well. Maybe there are sins that so easily, habitually have entangled you. And instead of running to God, you ran to them. Now you run to him as your refuge in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial, in the midst of fear. And the Lord is faithful. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, says Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to, tr than to trust in princes. And Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. How do you find a place like this? Oftentimes, as Bible teachers, I think we could be a little bit guilty of giving you concepts without giving you concrete application. And that's something that I want to try to provide to you tonight. How do you find a place like this as your refuge? A place in... Modern uh, speech is sometimes described as a state of mind. We might say to somebody that we know, I'm not in a good place right now. Now, what we mean by that is we're not talking about our location physically. We're talking about our mental, spiritual state. I'm not in a good place. We might say to someone who loves us, don't talk to me for the next half an hour. I'm not in a good place. Don't come in to the space. I'm not in a good place. And we're like, okay, thank you for the warning, <laughs> right? We've all been there before. Just not feeling it, not in a good place. We're talking about emotional, spiritual health. How did I end up there? Often I end up in a bad place because of circumstances, because of feelings, because of stress, because of destructive thinking. Sometimes we find that we're in patterns of destructive thinking. Have you ever caught yourself in your own self-talk just demeaning yourself more and more and you're like, where did that come from? You know, I'm just a terrible, rotten sinner. What an idiot I am. I mean, we can say all these things in our minds and we start to kind of chip away at what God says about us. And the enemy, I think, loves to use that stuff. And so a place of refuge is a place where we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. 
The way we move from the bad place to the good place is by shifting our focus to the Lord. It's literally calling upon him and seeking him who is both present. Remember, we just read he's very present in times of trouble and he will help you if you call to him. So the place of refuge for you may be a prayer closet. It may be a quiet place where you go go off by yourself, but it may also become just a simple shift in your thinking. It may be deciding that you're gonna turn off the TV and open your Bible and actually open it and read it. It may be that you decide I'm gonna put on some praise music to shift my thinking away from the what I've created in my own mind or what maybe the enemy has created. Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 33, three says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. And Isaiah 55, six says, call upon the Lord while he is near. And so that's what we need to do. And that's often what I fail to do in my moments of trouble. Sometimes I don't immediately call to the Lord. And this is what he tells me that he's willing to do. In Psalm 81, he is, uh, this is a psalm of Asaph, and he says, You called in trouble, 81.7, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. And then would you all turn to Psalm 91? Psalm 91 is another beautiful protection psalm. Just a few verses here, but these are also connected to some of the themes that we've been looking at. Psalm 91 Let's look at verse 14 together. It says, because he has loved me, Psalm 91, 14, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name, Psalm 91, 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. Back to Psalm 46, Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I was going through the book by J.P. Moreland called Finding Quiet in anticipation of his arrival and I got to interview him for our radio program And I mentioned the verse in the first part of that uh, radio interview. And JP was, he mentioned uh, Matthew 6, 34. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And he said, you know, I've heard that verse so many times. I know the verse by heart. But he said, has anybody ever told you how not to worry about tomorrow? And uh, if, if anybody's ever told you and it sounded good, would you tell me? It's hard, right? But Jesus told us, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious for it. Focus on today. Sometimes people who are in recovery are told, just take it one day at a time. But that's not just for people in recovery. That's for all of us. We are to take the Christian walk one day at a time. The Lord will give us the grace that we need for today. Brother, sister, You cannot change yesterday. You cannot control tomorrow. But you can live for Christ today. 
You cannot change yesterday. If you are living your life right now in the yesterdays and you have regret and we understand that and there's some things that we have to do in some of those cases like repent of that, make amends. But if you've done that, if you've done the best you can to live at peace with all people and those hurts and wounds from the past continue to take you out of the place of refuge, please try to lay those at God's feet. You can't change yesterday. If those things are under the blood, then they're under the blood, amen? And you cannot control tomorrow. As much as I want to be in control, any control freaks out there? Any, any backseat drivers? Any front seat drivers? Any, anyway, any, you're in another car and you, you're telling people how they should drive? Okay, anyway, I'm with you, right? But we can't control tomorrow and so we can live for Christ today. Let me ask you this question. How many of you would be at a better place, emotionally and spiritually, if you released yesterday to God, truly, and you released tomorrow to God? How many of you would be in a much better place? Now, I'm preaching to myself because I'm a work in progress, and I'm trying to figure out how to do this stuff too. So this sermon is for me, and if it helps you, praise the Lord. Psalm 46, verse 2. Therefore, now we see a word therefore, what do we ask? What is it therefore? It always causes us to look back. Well, God is our refuge and strength, verse 1. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, in light of that, we will not what? We will not fear. Therefore, in light of the fact that God's a very present help, he's my refuge and my strength, I will not fear. And some of you are going to have to tell yourself those words. I will not fear. And you're going to have to say it with some emphasis. You may have to say it in the mirror to the person looking back at you. You will not fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, these verses are there because, of course, we all wrestle with fear. But we don't have to fear. We can say, I will not fear because the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's the defense of my life. I will not fear. Whom shall I dread? Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a plant, tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Verse 2 says, I won't fear though the earth should change. If you have a New King James, if the earth would be removed and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Now, let me ask you, Bible students, are those normal, everyday occurrences? Look at verse 2. If the earth changed or the mountains slipped into the heart of the sea, that I would call a cataclysmic event. And I think what the writer is saying is this. He's saying, look, if you could be in a place where you wouldn't fear if the earth shifted and changed, or was removed, and if the mountains, if you watch mountains fall into the ocean, if you didn't have to fear in those situations of extreme cataclysm, 
what does that do to the little things that cause you fear? If you don't have to fear the big mountains and the big oceans, then you don't have to fear the little skirmishes and the little things that come at you in life. Do you find, like I do, that sometimes the little things stack up and all of a sudden we make a mountain out of a molehill, right? All of a sudden, what was seemingly insignificant and petty, we, sometimes we get in an uh, argument with our spouse and what was a stupid, petty argument becomes a mountain that we now have to recover from. Or we jump to a conclusion about how a person may feel about us or how they looked at us or, you know, this or that or what might be or what if or this or that. And we And all of a sudden, we're in a place of fear. Of old, you did found the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, says the psalmist in Psalm 102, and thou will endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou will change them, and they shall be changed. Psalm 102, 25 and 26. The earth is going to change. God is going to make new heavens and a new earth. And, a, and I believe that the followers of Jesus Christ may get to watch that take place. Watch God create new heavens and a new earth. You want to talk about uh, what should be a very expensive ticket? Huh? Hey, what do we get to do today? Oh, today God's making new heavens and a new earth. Woo! He's going to even throw some new stars out there. Shabam, bam, bam, bam. That's impressive. That's the power of our God. See, this is calm in the ultimate storm. Therefore, by extension, I should be able to have calm in the little storms. You see, if it's possible not to fear under these extreme conditions, by comparison, my little fears should disappear in the light of this truth. Though its waters roar, look at verse 3, and foam, Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah, we'll come back to that. NIV says, verse 3, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Here the image could be of the waves responding to the mountains falling into the sea, and by virtue of that, they roar and they foam. Turn all the way to Luke 21. Jesus is describing end days cataclysmic events, Luke 21. And he says these words about, uh, that have to do with perplexity and the ocean. This is uh, Luke 21, 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, Luke 21, 25. And upon the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, Luke 21, 26. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Luke 21, 27. And then they will see the Son of Man, Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, straighten up and lift up your heads because what? Your redemption is drawing near. This gives us a little indication as you turn back to Psalm 46 of the cataclysmic events that will surround or be happening in the world 
at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we're going to have to have some steel in our souls should we witness these things or be here for these things. But we are contrasted. People are going to be fainting from fear, but the church is encouraged to look up because what? Our redemption draweth near. And that's the contrast between the unbeliever who rejects God and the believer who has hope in the God who made the world and everything in it when he changes the world, we don't have to be afraid. There is a river, uh, Psalm 46, 4, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. In the Bible, the city of God and the city of man are contrasted, and this has been written about by, uh, I think it was Augustine who wrote about this. And the idea here is the city of God is the people of God in the place of God. You could call it the kingdom of God. And we know there's going to be a new Jerusalem one day, and that will be the city of God. And the city of man is captured in the idea of Babylon all throughout the Bible from Genesis 10 all the way through Revelation 17 and 18. And that's the city of man who rejects God, is anti-God, and persecutes the church. But when it's all said and done... Revelation 22.1 says of the new Jerusalem, and he showed me a river of the water of life, a pure river of water as clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. There is a river the stream, whose streams make glad the city of God. That river flows from the throne of God. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of having everything we've ever wanted. It's the waters of life right there coming from God to his people. And we're going to be where our God is. God is in the midst of her, Psalm 46, 5. She will not be moved with the city of God. God will help her when morning dawns. In Acts 20, 24, people were begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem because prophecies were coming forth that chains and afflictions awaited him. And in the New King James of Acts 20, 24, Paul says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Don McClure, who was Calvary Chapel pastor for many years, uh, went through a whole series of hardships and difficulties. His favorite verse was Acts 20, 24. None of these things move me. And he would sign cards to people, uh, you know, an encouragement card, and, and he would always write Acts 20, 24. And so he went through a, a terrible tragedy. I don't remember the details of it, but I know it was a significant moment of his life of loss and questioning his faith and I remember him telling this story. I watched him preach this message, and he said he was walking around outside this building, and he was praying, and he was asking questions like Job about his faith, and God, what are you doing? And God spoke Acts 20, 24 to him and put it this way. Is this going to move you? And I remember Don McClure saying, he said to God, that's not fair. You're using my own Bible verse on me. He said, you have all those verses in the Bible and you had to use my verse that I write on cards to people. It's not fair, God. And then he came to this realization. You sign that verse to all these people 
trying to encourage them, but is that verse good enough for you? Is this going to move you? And I think the psalmist is trying to encourage us that we don't have to be moved because God will help us. He's in the midst of his people. She will not be moved. We just studied 1 Corinthians 15. In light of the truth of the resurrection, saints, the Bible says, be steadfast. Remember, what does it say? Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work for the Lord is never in vain. Saints, be immovable. The Lord is my rock, my refuge, and my strength. Now, the, the nations, they made an uproar. Verse 6, the kingdoms tottered. He, God, raised his voice, the earth melted. The kingdoms are always rebelling against God. Psalm 2, 2 Peter 3, the mockers, the, those who fight against God. Revelation 19, the beast and his armies went to fight against the God of the Bible. Put them on, put them on. And God just goes, yeah, okay, pipsqueak, your arms are too short, right? But this is what man does, and this is what we get afraid of. We, we are afraid of people, right? And what people say and how they categorize us. Oh, I remember hearing Greg Laurie preaching at a Harvest Crusade when I think it was one of the members of the Rolling Stones said, we are now bigger than Jesus. Oh, I'd be very careful in making a statement like that. And I, I remember Greg Laurie saying, tongue-in-cheek, whoa, whoa, you're bigger than Jesus. You see, Jesus is the creator of the world, and he holds it together by the word of his power, and Jesus is your God, your Savior, your King, your Mediator your friend. See, the nations are going to be in an uproar, but when the Lord speaks, the earth melts. Judgment language. The Lord of hosts, verse 7, he is with us. The God of Jacob, he is our stronghold. And then what do we have, brothers and sisters? We have Selah. Now, you guys remember that we have a song here. So whenever you see Selah in your Bible, here's what it means. And there's some different ways to define it, and I'll, and I'll define it fully at the end of the message, but Selah means pause, praise, ponder. Three Ps. Whenever you see Selah in a psalm like this, it means to pause. It's a pa literally a pause in the music. So musicians sometimes have, just like speakers, speakers have what we call a pregnant pause. All right? A pregnant pause is you make a point, and then you just pause. You kind of just, <laughs> or you smile at people, right? And the, and the pause in a speech or a sermon is intended to let the point sink. This is the idea of a pregnant pause. So sometimes a pastor will pause because he's lost his place. <laughs> but if it's intentionally done, it's done to make you let the point Get into your soul. Move it from here down to here. Amen? In the song, it's a pause in the music to cause you to praise God for what was just said and also to ponder the point. 
It's pause, praise, ponder. That's Selah. And it, look what it comes right after. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of God or the angel armies is with us. The God of Israel or Jacob is our stronghold. Pause, praise, ponder. Think about it. Maybe that's a good time to say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Sometimes when pastors pause, it's to see if you might have a little praise coming back. So we pause to hear a... Oh, uh, there it was. <laughs> Come behold the works of the Lord, verse 8, who has wrought desolations in the earth. This is judgment language, and it says, take a look. Flip over to Psalm 28 for a second. Psalm 28 is uh, picking up the thought of how unbelievers ignore the works of the Lord all around them. Psalm 28 says these words, verse 5, because they, that is the unbelieving world, Christ-rejecting world, God-rejecting world, because they, Psalm 28, 5, do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. I am helped, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts or rejoices, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Sometimes I talk to unbelievers and they might say I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic and I immediately go to what's called the cosmological argument and I just simply say, where do you think all this came from? Where do you think the six million forms of plants and animals came from? Where do you think DNA came from? Where do you think the self-healing of the body, the circulatory system came from? Where do you think procreation came from? And how that works together to produce a child or offspring in other species. What do you think the grand design of the distance of the moon and the sun and the stars and how planets spin and another one spins another direction? And is that, did that just all happen by accident? What I'm saying to people is come behold the works of the Lord. Take a look around. Look into a baby's eyes and tell me there's not a God. Look into a sunset. Have you seen some of the sunsets lately? You look, you know, the sun sets in the west, right? And, and you look, there's a set, yeah, it sets in the west. And you look over and it's like a paintbrush. And that's just a little taste of the power and the glory of God. Not going not gonna to consider God, nope. Accident, explosion, nobody's steering. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of scientific sense, doesn't it? And believers are painted as ignorant, unscientific. And what do unbelievers believe? Well, if you're an evolutionist, you believe this is all a cosmic accident by an explosion. See, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Psalm 111, verse 2. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. 
The psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 118, verse 17, I shall not die, but I will live and tell of the works of the Lord. When the children of Israel were, uh, they had gone out of Egypt and the Egyptian army then fled, uh, then followed them and uh, they were at the edge of the Red Sea, there seemed to be no way out and there wasn't any natural way out. And God made a way when there was no way. And Moses said to the people, don't fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, who you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Come, Moses might put it this way, behold the works of the Lord. Just stand back. You don't even have to do anything. Just watch the show. That's what it means to be still. It means to trust God instead of yourself. It means to trust the work of the Lord and the power of the Lord instead of your own resources. It means to lean into the Lord. In fact, I have a friend, I told you guys in a previous message, when Moses uh, was up on the mountain and Aaron and Hur were holding up his hands and whenever his hands were up, they were winning the battle down below as Joshua fought the Amalekites. And then they, they made an altar and they called it, the Lord is my banner. And I have a friend that studies the Hebrew language and he believes that the Lord is my banner could be translated, the Lord is the one I lean on. And I think that is the picture of the psalm. It's lean on God. When you don't have what it takes and we don't, when the sons of Moab and Ammon and the Meunites were coming to make war with Jehoshaphat, a prophet spoke to the people. This is 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15. And he said, listen, all Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeraul. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves and stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. That's 2 Chronicles 20. 15 through 17. The Lord is with you. But would you hear the words? Go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. And this is part of what we have to do as believers. We have to face things with the knowledge that the Lord is with us. I have had many times in my life when I was like, Lord, could you get someone else? Lord, I'm not sure I want to face this or that. And it has driven me to prayer and it has driven me to trust in God, to have the faith to believe like Jehoshaphat or Moses or others. And what I've found is the Lord will call me to face it, but he's always got my back. You see, he, God, makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear. He can end wars quickly and he breaks them into and he burns the chariots with fire this is pictures of desolations in verses 8 through 10 a final judgment god will make war to cease finally we see in isaiah 2 4 11 9 
and 6525. War chariots were largely employed by the Assyrians and formed the main strength of the army of Shennacherib, and God was with Israel. And then the famous verse, this is verse 10, Psalm 46. It says, cease striving. ESV, NIV, New King James say, be still and know that I am God. Now in light, do you guys see how the psalm has set us up for verse 10? Many of us have heard verse 10. We may have memorized verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. That's a pretty one, easy one to memorize. But do you see the context now? This is why you can be still. This is why you can know because God is your refuge. He's your strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. He's the all-powerful God. He's with you and not against you. Therefore, in light of that, he's fighting your battles. Be still and don't guess. Don't wonder. Be still and know that I am God. You are not. (laughs) I am God, God might say. You aren't. Be still. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it says cease striving. Uh, You may notice in your translation, I think it may read this way, that striving is italicized. Let me double check that. Is that true in the New, New American Standard? Striving is italicized. Literally, the Hebrew could be rendered, and the Hebrew is rafa. It literally means it could be rendered cease. Stop. Be still. And you could even render it relax. I'll talk about that in a second. Cease. Now, I was thinking about illustrations of this, and when my boys were younger, my wife cut everybody's hair. And uh, I, was, I was saying, honey, what were some times in the boy's life where you had to tell them, stop moving, be still? And I said, was it the time of a haircut? And she said, oh, yeah. It was hard to keep them still in the barber's chair. When I was a little kid, my mom would take me to the barber, and he was like an old traditional barber with the razors and everything. And I was very ticklish on the back of my neck. And so whenever he would get near me with that razor, I would... (laughs) And I couldn't sit still. And the barber was pleading with me, and my mother was pleading with me, and the price for the haircut was going up and up and up and up. And it would be something like this with my mother's Italian vein, going like this, twitching. Sit still. Razor. Be still. Sit still. Stop wiggling around. Relax. Be still, child of God. I think if he had a word for us tonight, with that word picture of the little kid who can't sit still, I think we're the little kids. And I think often we're at God's barber shop and he's saying, sit still and know just know i am god and we usually say to god you're not going to give me one of those bowl cuts are you <laughs> people are like where'd you get that haircut your mom cut you yeah now my wife actually does a great job cutting hair but some of you grew up and you know it was like you got the bowl cut <laughs> literally they put the bowl on you and 
Or you got that summer cut. The summer cut is simply, it's off, right? Sit still. Rafa, R-A-P-H-A, Hebrew word, literally means cease, no takers. It means to slacken, to sink, to relax, to let drop, to refrain. This is all be still to let go, to let it alone, to be quiet. That's taking the uh, one, two Hebrew lexicons and giving you the definitions of Rafa. Cease, be still, that's it. You ready for it? Slacken, sink, relax, let it drop, refrain, let it go, leave it alone, <laughs> be Quiet, sit, still, and know I'm God. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? The biggest reason why we struggle with that scene is because we wrestle with trusting that God is God. Amen? We know the song, Jesus Take the Wheel, right? Or as Tim Hawkins did a funny revision of the song, Cletus Take the Reel. You guys ever hear that before? Tim Hawkins, comedian? He did a spoof on the song, Cletus Take the Reel. It's a fishing spoof. Never mind. Apparently, you guys didn't <laughs> hear about it, and you don't want to laugh tonight. That's okay. It wasn't that funny, I know. But it's like, Cletus Take the Reel. <laughs> anyway. Relax. Have you ever said that to yourself? <laughs> I was out on the golf course with a friend, and he's a good golfer. <clears throat> and when you play golf for the first time with people that you haven't played golf with before, sometimes you get a little tight over the ball. And so you might do one of these, <laughs> and it's, the ball's still right there. Or you hit a ball, and it's flying at somebody's head. And I remember my friend saying to himself, Relax. Relax. Why can't some of us relax? Because we think we're God. What? Oh, no, no, no. Well, I know you don't think you're the God. But sometimes I think we think we got to pretty much be God. We got to control our lives, control this, control that. We can't just simply leave it with God. I mean, that's just a little too simple, isn't it? Maybe a little too spiritual. And the psalmist says, I want you to be still and know. God says, stop and know. What do we need to do now to, to know that God is God? What do we need to do to practice this? How can I stop wiggling when I'm un, in uncomfortable situations? How can I simply say, I'm gonna be still and know? I think one of the ways that you can do this, brothers and sisters, is you're gonna have to quote the verse to yourself in the moments. 
where you're most anxious. It's going to be something like this. And I told you we're going to get a little practical as we wind down. Be still and know has to be something that you can quote to yourself at the moment when everything, the avalanches of life have got you out of the chair underneath a pile of sand. That's when you're going to have to say, wait a minute, freeze it. I'm going to be still and know. When Jesus was under his temptation uh, by the devil in the wilderness, three times, what did Jesus do in the midst of temptation? He what? He quoted scripture. So there's no doubt that that's part of your arsenal. And Psalm 4610 is cease, relax, and know. We can cease striving if you like to put it in modern language, be still and chill <laughs> and know that I am God. In the midst of a crisis, be still. Psalm 4 says, tremble and do not sin, verse 4. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. In quick rapid fire, this is how I think we can think about the whole psalm. God is our refuge and strength. Verse one, a very present help in trouble. Verse one, I will not fear. Verse two, even when cataclysms come because of God being with me, God is in the midst of his people. Verse five, they will not be moved. Verse five, God will help her at the break of day. Verse five, and we're reminded of God being our refuge. He will judge his enemies and our enemies. He's in the midst of his people. The Lord of hosts is with us. Psalm 46, 11 this kind of is the other bookend of the psalm. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, kind of a repetition of what's already been stated. And then what's the last word? It's Selah. Let me read from my notes. The primary meaning of the word Selah means to cast up, to lift up or exalt. It speaks of a suspension of music or a pause. So it's a pause, praise, and ponder. It's a good way to think about this word. In order to practice being still, we need to pause and praise often. We need to try to freeze negative thoughts and look afresh to God in places of refuge. We need to look to God as God. We need to say something like this. This is a psalm of trust, so we need to say something like this. God, I am going to trust you with this. And I believe that you're calling me to be still and know that you're God and I'm not. So I'm gonna place my trust in you. I'm gonna put this situation before you, this difficulty before you, this gnawing question before you, this uh, habitual struggle that I have, and I'm gonna trust you with it. 